Welcome to Unraveling the Anthropocene, Race, Environment, and Pandemic, a podcast series brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective, or LAC, at the Pennsylvania State University. As an interdisciplinary group, we promote visionary scholarship in the humanities, we build community across different fields of study, and we highlight the ways that different disciplines inform and shape one another. You can find more information about our previous events on our website, sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic this year, we have developed this podcast series as an intervention into our global ecological emergency. In our discussions with scholars, activists, artists, and community members, we address how global ecological crises both impact and are impacted by political turmoil, widespread outbreaks of infectious disease, and racial violence. Hello, and welcome back to Unraveling the Anthropocene. My name is Hannah Matangos, and in this episode, I interview Kristen J. Jacobson. She's a professor of American Literature, American Studies, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Stockton University in New Jersey. She completed her PhD at Penn State, her MA at University of Colorado Boulder, and her MA at Carthage University in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Her book, Neo-Domestic American Fiction, published in 2010 by Ohio State University Press, examines contemporary domestic novels, and her current book, The American Adrenaline Narrative, published this year in 2020 by University of Georgia Press, identifies a new genre of travel and environmental literature. I started out our conversation by asking Professor Jacobson if she could define the adrenaline narrative for us. Fundamentally, the adrenaline narrative is a story about perilous outdoor adventure. And my book specifically looks at post-1970 American adrenaline narratives. And I focus on popular and lesser known uh, narratives by and about Americans who are writing or participating in extreme adventure and nature sports. So uh, much of the book focuses on uh, book-length nonfiction narratives, but I also talk about advertising and you see the narrative in advertising, social media, film, television, essays. So some popular examples, uh, television examples would include shows like Survivor, Survivor Man, Out of the Wild, Dual Survival, Naked and Afraid, let's see, uh, Man, Woman, Wild, those would be uh, some of the American incarnations. Uh, in terms of films, which were also books, so books that uh, likely folks uh, might be familiar with, uh, those include Into the Wild, which is a film based on John Krakauer's book by the same title. Uh, a Walk in the Woods, uh, that's a book by Bill Bryson, again, same title. And then Wild, uh, the book and film uh, by uh, Cheryl Strayed wrote the book. In terms of documentary films, perhaps Free Solo is one that listeners might be familiar with. It features the free solo climber Alex Honnold, and that film won the Academy Award for Best Documentary in 2018. And then beyond that, I think, you know, once you start looking around for anything that's labeled extreme, and it can be on everything from like Midstain, ice cream cones that you buy, find in the freezer section of your grocery store, gum, laundry detergent, you know, maybe Mountain Dew or other kinds of uh, certain soft drinks or energy beverages are associated with extreme. And so that that whole marketing kind of taps into the adrenaline narrative as well. 
Right. So I guess a general question I have for you is how did you get interested in adrenaline narratives? Well, I, I was a PhD student at Penn State myself in the English department. And so I took a nature writing and eco-criticism course with Bob Burkholder. And so I had an idea to write about these books. The, these weren't books that we were reading in the class, but I gave me permission, said, hey, if you want to run with this and uh, write about it. Because uh, these were books that I've been kind of reading for pleasure. So things like John Krakauer's Into the Into Thin Air, or Into the Wild. So I wrote that seminar paper. And at that uh, time, Kit Hume uh, was offering a graduate uh, summer course. And I think they still offer some variation of this in the English department at Penn State. Uh, but the course focused on the profession and then revising a, an essay for publication. So I workshopped the essay in her course, and she actually gave me the idea to name a genre. It wasn't something I'd like thought about doing. And so that work ended up resulting in my first peer-reviewed uh, publication with the journal uh, Genre. Now, I was also working on my dissertation, of course, at this time, and it's also about, or it was also about uh, genre and narrative, but it was it's related to fiction. So this project on the adrenaline narrative kind of simmered. I completed my dissertation. I started my job at Stockton University, and I published uh, my, my first book, which is based on uh, the, uh, my dissertation. And so then, and then I returned to this project uh, and looked at it beyond an article-length kind of project. I wanted to expand it. I guess I'm, you know, so that's sort of like the formal way I have been working on this uh, project. But more informally, before coming to Penn State, I was a graduate student at the University of Colorado. And I was just really fascinated by the, the culture of the Boulder, Denver area. It's, it's just, it's gorgeous country, right? And it's uh, kind of a mecca for endurance athletes, mountaineers, uh, weekend warriors, you know, who, you know, all those folks. And so I started reading, you know, kind of being um, in this culture and seeing these, you know, in many cases, extreme athletes who were training in the area. And I just sort of became fascinated with the culture. And so you know, being the book nerd that I am, I, you know, read, was reading books about it uh, and learning about the culture that way. My dad also really likes nonfiction more than fiction. And so these are also books that we kind of pass back and forth uh, to, with each other. Uh, and even now that my mom's retired, uh, we kind of, you know, share some of these books or watch films together, watch the TV shows together when I'm visiting family. So that's kind of uh, the other way in which uh, I've, I've been working on this project more informally. I just think it's very interesting the ways in which gender kind of comes to play in these narratives and also just the way, you know, that we picture, say, the modern mountaineer or like the extreme athlete. In many cases, I feel that it's very hyper-masculinist. Yeah, and I think that in part relates to the ways in which I'm reading the adrenaline narrative as an American narrative. The portrayal of masculinity, I think, is really connected to uh, a particular foundational American myths. And so 
while in many ways the adrenaline narrative is a global narrative, and we can see that in uh, other imperial or colonial, especially in other imperial and colonial countries like England, Spain, France, right? They also have, I would say, a really strong adrenaline culture, uh, so to speak. Uh, but what I'm really interested in, in terms of helping us understand American culture and even maybe even in particular representations of American masculinity are the ways that they kind of connect to these myths about that define America and particularly its relationship uh, with the wilderness. You know, as I was thinking about, uh, you know, this project today, I, I uh Looked again because I remembered that uh, Roderick Fraser Nash has this great quote that it was sort of like something I kept thinking about as I was writing this book. And in his book, Wilderness and the American Mind, quote, take away wilderness and you take away the opportunity to be American. And I think that really speaks to the ways in which the cultures of the extreme and American identity are fused. Uh, particularly in, and we can particularly see this in contemporary American culture. Uh, and I think particularly with the rise of extreme sports and other scholars have, uh, you know, talked a bit about this too. You know, we're coming off of, in some ways, a, a sort of rise of second and then third wave feminism and, uh, civil rights, right? Uh, pushes for, uh, racial and social justice. And alongside an environmental movement. And so some of those uh, privileges of a particular incarnation of American identity uh, have somewhat been pushed to the side. And in some ways, for some, the adrenaline narrative is this outlet that still it's an accepted and safe place to kind of be this hyper-masculine dude. <laughs> uh, and it's in some ways, too, this is, an, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be careful to say masculinity as opposed to men, because I think that um, in, in many ways, what I found is that writers, regardless of how they identified in terms of their gender, would reproduce the this kind of heroic masculinity that's connected to. Uh, and here I'll draw from uh, another author that I talk about, um, uh, last name Simon, and the book is North to the Night. And uh, in his narrative, he talks about a quote-unquote authentic adventure. Authentic adventure, according to Simon, has three qualities, solitude, deprivation, and danger. And so I think that that connects with also a kind of Thoreauvian tradition, right, uh, a kind of rejection of certain kind of comforts, particularly the comforts of domesticity, and then also a kind of very American, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get the job done kind of mentality. And that's how you conquer the American dream. <laughs> so I think that, that those incarnations of masculinity really relate to some of these foundational American myths, particularly in the American adrenaline narrative. Yeah, I do think that it is really important the way that you highlight that it's not men but this masculinity and the ways in which we see this kind of playing out in a variety of different narratives regardless of the gender of the author which I think is really important especially when we kind of consider today the position of these narratives with regard to race as well for me I'm kind of thinking of how 
the role of whiteness in terms of these narratives of kind of setting out to conquer the wilderness, for instance, and what room that leaves for other kinds of narratives in terms of wilderness, nature, and the way that one even just intervenes in nature or finds one's own position in nature. Yeah, there's a definite connection. You know, risk as a leisure activity is very much raced and gendered and uh, also has a class component as well who can play, you know, with these kinds of extreme risks. It's not just a, um, necessarily a matter of who has the sort of geographic access, but also like who would find it entertaining? <laughs> like if your life isn't risky enough that you go and seek it. Uh, yourself. Or even in the ways in which uh, I talk, uh, for example, about how women in the narratives often express how they experience wilderness very differently from their male counterparts. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with issues of sexual harassment or sexual or fear of sexual assault, if not outright sexual assault. So um, the primary authors of and participants in extreme adventures then not surprisingly do tend to be white heterosexual able-bodied men. <laughs> and so class is sometimes a little bit tricky because there's this kind of romance of the dirtbag, a, a kind of social class associated, like a starving artist version of the endurance athlete. Class can, can be a bit tricky in terms of if, if we're just strictly looking at how much money is made. But certainly the most elite and famous athletes are uh, economically privileged. So I examine in the book, you know, perspectives that fall both inside and outside of that, uh, we might say norm or the majority. And that potential that I see tends to fall away from, there's probably two really conventional ways of interacting with nature. One is this conquering narrative that we've been talking about. And then the other is a kind of spiritual narrative. In thinking about how it represents nature, I found them both actually to be very objectifying to nature, even though they might be coming from different places. Ultimately, they see nature as an object to extract some value from. With the spiritual side, it's extracting that something that helps the individual adventurer, but doesn't necessarily connect with nature uh, or assist, you know, or think about the ways in which this adventure may not be beneficial to the environment or the people who live in the environment that they're traveling in or through. A couple of shifts happen uh, with views of nature that are less objectifying. And so I found those the most promising as changing and actively engaged in changing this adrenaline narrative. And specifically, I would say the American adrenaline narrative. In our previous correspondence, you quote Luann Freer, the director of an emergency medical clinic at Everest, who asked in a 2016 outside online article, quote, how much louder does this mountain need to speak to tell us all is not okay, end quote. Just from this quote, I was thinking of this notion that the environment is trying to communicate with the adventurer, but there are certain barriers to communication depending on one's own identity and one's own upbringing. But nevertheless, that the environment is speaking to us and is really necessitating like our response and adjustment. And of course, this makes me think that some segments of the global population are more attuned to the environment than others, something that we've previously raised. 
in this podcast is that those affected most by climate change are really the ones who are contributing the least to it. And of course, those are also primarily communities of color, of non-white people. I kind of would like to ask you then about your sense of man in all of this and man being like anthropos, the Anthropocene. Um, so I was wondering if you could give us kind of your thinking around the Anthropocene. How do you define it? That was a question we were asked um, at our launch party by one of our listeners I also just kind of wonder how is your understanding of the Anthropocene kind of connected to a sense of this American individualism? So I tend to use the Anthropocene as a term, you know, sort of broadly just to define the longer or larger time period and context in which, right, this post-1970 American adrenaline narrative is set. Sometimes I think a term like climate crisis really connotes the present moment, like we're in a crisis now, and it's that contemporary concern with climate change, where the Anthropocene really invokes that larger sense of period of history, uh, arguably starting with the Industrial Revolution, right, that leads up to and includes this current crisis. So those terms then you know, both end up emphasizing human impact uh, with the focus on industrialized nations, as you were pointing out, uh, and their impact on the natural environment. So the key here for me, too, is to think about the ways in which the adrenaline narrative is pedagogical, uh, particularly in this moment around risk. And so while the risks associated with an individual adventurer going out <laughs> and having an adventure is different in terms of scale or degree than the risks that are, are associated with climate change and the climate crisis. I think that still, nonetheless, we, we can learn something from the ways in which the adventurers both successfully and sometimes don't successfully cope with risk and, and consider risk as a part of, of the adventure. In adrenaline narratives, for example, uh, there's a, there's usually a lot of explanation about how the adventurer both cultivates but also copes with risk. And so it's definitely a, a, like a required skill. And I think understanding risk as a skill is especially important. You know, you turn on the news, you know, you're going to see something about the pandemic and the ways in which American culture in particular is either coping or not coping. And as we were talking about earlier, that sense of risk too gets gendered in particular ways in terms of, you know, is wearing a mask a sign of weakness? Is it a sign of masculinity uh, or not? And so I think that's those ideas about how, how we understand risk and in many cases and gender, that that's one way in which we can Think about these adrenaline narratives as, as teaching us or giving us some, some lessons as being instructive for how we might look at some of these problems. And of course, with, you know, American individualism, you know, these are highly individualistic narratives. And so John Krakauer, with arguably the most well-known American adrenaline narrative, uh, writer and adventurer, he writes in Into the Wild, which is about a young man, Chris McCandless, who goes off to Alaska, right, to, has, to have his big adventure and uh, tragically dies. And so in that book, Krakauer writes about how it's easy, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read a, 
short quote here. Uh, quote, it's easy when you are young to believe that what you desire is no less than what you deserve, to assume that if you want something badly enough, it is your God-given right to have it, end quote. And so there's a sort of, you know, I think he's very empathetic to Chris McCandless at the same time that there is a critique, right, of the kind of hubris associated with um, that project. Then Krakauer gets the opportunity to climb Everest and in Into Thin Air, his book about uh, the Everest tragedy uh, when he when he climbed. Uh, but he says when he got the call, quote, you know, good sense be damned. He, he was going to climb Everest, right? Even though he knew the sort of knew the risks. And so I think what shapes our environmental imagination as it shapes Krakauer's you know, decisions here and analysis here, you know, good sense be damned, <laughs> is that Rugged individualism and I think a kind of version of American exceptionalism shapes our understanding of, of risk in American culture. I was wondering then of the ways in which risk is managed by different writers in these stories. What are the different ways in which risk can be managed, and does it look different across different populations? Let me say that the adventurers that I'm writing about would probably reject the term adrenaline as being a key component of the narrative. And that is, of course, associated with the risk, that they're somehow in search of, you know, sort of a death right there. Uh, adrenaline junkies, and in many ways, they're probably more control freaks than uh, adrenaline junkies. And that has to do with the very precise ways in which they have trained in order to mitigate or understand the, the very sort of threshold that they can push up against. And this, I think, is a possible cautionary lesson, right? Because it seems like that has been you know, perhaps globally, but I think in the in the U.S., the way in which we're dealing with the climate crisis, <laughs> if at all, is right to keep pushing up to the limit to kind of think like, oh, like we don't really have to make any particular sacrifice. And so I think it's when we look to at the narratives that are quote unquote unsuccessful there where the decision was not to push to the summit. And to turn around and get they still, you know, it was about the journey as opposed to the destination, that sort of cliche. And that those might be the ways in which we have to think about risk differently. And that can be, you know, that's sort of one way in which it seems as though our policies are more about pushing the risk and hoping that the accident that's built into what, you know, the, you know, the adventure wouldn't be an adventure without risk that, but it just won't happen. There's the other side that's weighing the costs and consequences and finally seeing, listening to nature in that sense. And I think that's the other aspect that many of the adventurers pursue the risk in order to achieve a certain level of what's sometimes called play or flow Right. This is where that sort of this one to it's sort of this melding often described as kind of melding with nature or dancing with nature. Dancing is another kind of common metaphor that the writers will often use to talk about their experience in these 
very risky situations, but where kind of the rest of the world falls away. And so I think that those, we have to remember that the climate crisis is not going to fall away <laughs> too. So I think that the, you know, there's limitations to what we can learn from the adrenaline narrative about the climate crisis and, and the current pandemic for that matter. But I think there's also strong correlations that can provide some instruction in terms of why we're not dealing with the risks that are in front of us in the ways. You mentioned uh, uh, Luann Frears, right? A quote from the Outside uh, Magazine uh, article. Yeah, like how much louder does a mountain or this river or wherever, how much louder does it have to speak to us in order for us to listen and take notice and to change paths, to change course in our narrative? Yeah, and I think not only how much louder does the mountain have to speak, um, but also from our present moment, how much louder do the people have to speak as well? I'm thinking not only of, um, say, Native American populations with the uh, Dakota pipeline, but also I'm thinking even of Black Americans in like the present moment of police brutality. And when it comes to risk, I think of managing risk in a certain sense is also a daily task for many marginalized populations in this country and not even necessarily in the wilderness, but just in navigating one's daily environment. I was wanting to ask you as well about the relationship of racism to the outdoors and the ways in which adrenaline narratives could be used to reorient dominant narratives surrounding wilderness and outdoor writing today? As you're saying, I, we need to shift the narrative. And that shift needs to be more than an inclusion of Black or brown bodies or more women or queer folk into the existing dominant narrative, because that narrative has roots in colonialism, racism, sexism. So without a shift in how the story is told or is framed, you know, it's going to risk entrenching further this environmental imagination that continues along unsustainable paths. One of the ways in which I find the adrenaline narrative really sort of groundbreaking uh, is through what I call restorative desire. And this is uh, ways in which the adventurers, kind of, I would say, combine elements from restoration ecology and restorative justice. And this is a redemptive uh, uh, narrative that's really focused on long-term sustainability. And so one example uh, I would point to would be Indigenous Women Hike and their work to reclaim land, uh, what probably most listeners know as like the John Muir Trail. Uh, that's an example of restorative desire, restorative justice work in, the in an environmental framework. There's a essay by Elizabeth Wheeler, and it's called Don't Climb Every Mountain, and it offers a disability studies perspective, which I think provides a revolutionary model of refusal and resistance to what's sometimes called the supercrypt narrative. And Wheeler looks at Eli Clare's 1999 memoir, Exile and Pride, what she calls normator, what's known in disability studies as this normator, sort of able-bodied adventurer. Uh, can learn a lot from this perspective because it debunks this bootstrap American wilderness narrative. 
other forms, I think some of the most innovative work is happening through social media. So Instagram accounts like Black People Who Hike, Urban Climber, and Fat Girls Hiking change the dominant outdoor visual narrative. And I think a lot of that is has to come from a grassroots. I think there's some work that's being done by the more sort of mainstream outdoor adventure companies in terms of, oh, now they're marketing and their marketing includes, you know, but it's more that inclusion as opposed to changing the narrative necessarily sometimes. And I think these are groups whose accounts not only visually change the narrative, but are engaged with changing the story of, of what's being promoted in their interest in the outdoors. I also think that, you know, sort of looking at then how might a white male, right? So we go back to that dominant perspective or the dominant adventurer of the adrenaline narrative. So Dave Morton, uh, Outside Magazine, uh, wrote an article about him quitting Everest in 2016. And the article is really pretty honest about how much he struggled and how difficult it is for him to sort of give up Everest as, as a climbing business. He struggled to forge a new narrative. And I think we have to recognize, you know, how difficult it is to shift narratives, to change the narrative. He's, um, he's tried to focus more on the Sherpa population that's been increasingly impacted by climbing deaths and injuries and the ways in which Everest has become increasingly unsafe to climb due to climate change. So I think all of these stories then contribute to shifting the dominant narrative into one of restoration, you know, social and environmental justice, rather than a kind of focus more on pure recreation or self-discovery. I love, of course, all these accounts and everything um, that you mentioned. So I'm definitely going to make sure that we include those on the website. I personally follow Patagonia, if you know Patagonia, um, who seeks to not only make the outdoors a space that's safe um, and welcoming for queer people, but also focuses a lot as well on the recognition of issues of race um, in the outdoors. Mm -hmm. You also um, mention... America's schizophrenic attitude toward the environment, um, as keyed by Jane Jacobs in The Death and Life of the Great American Cities. I was wondering if you could kind of define that for our listeners and what exactly that means in the way that Americans currently conceptualize and narrativize the outdoors. This is the, the push and pull of both, on one hand, desire to conquer nature and on the other, desire to protect nature. I mean, in many ways, America, you could say, has been on some of the four, has been at the forefront of some important environmental legislation, right? At the same time, it's one of the biggest perpetrators of, you know, industrial pollution. So this is that schizophrenic uh, element that Jane Jacobs uh, describes and talks about. And I really felt like I saw that playing out in the range of narratives. So that there, there isn't a clear indication that that schizophrenic attitude has changed. And so I would still say that we are at a kind of crossroads. And and I, I honestly don't think it's that much, you know, it's not sustainable, of course, in the long term, to think that you can both conquer, exploit, and protect nature at the same time. One or the other is it needs to win out here. So 
I think that the uh, attention to narrative can help bridge the imaginative gap that sometimes allows the schizophrenia to coexist and help point out some of the inconsistencies that contribute to you know, why we haven't maybe been able to be more successful in addressing the climate crisis. I don't know if, if when you were younger, you had your choose your own adventure stories. Are you familiar with those books? Of course, of course. (laughs) So I sort of feel like that's kind of where the, where we're at. We can decide, you know, are we going to continue along this more conquering and exploitation with the idea that Maybe technology will save us. Maybe, you know, we just won't get hit with the big consequences. But I think increasingly, and as you pointed out a bit earlier, that populations, particularly that are living in some of the more vulnerable uh, areas, have already, you know, have already experienced the consequences. And it's not a matter of, of time. And I think it's interesting to think about as well, this relationship between environment and technology and also between, I guess, the adventurer and technology as well. I don't know. I think of these things almost as very separate. We think of like the natural versus like the man-made, perhaps the mechanical. Um, But nevertheless, we see technology to a certain extent as the solution to not only perhaps protect ourselves in the outdoors, but also to manage and ameliorate um, the climate crisis. Of course, that, I guess, also comes down to an issue of access. Who has access to technology? And not only who has access, but who's really benefiting, especially when we have this double-sided coin of technology benefiting us, but also the production of technology and the consequences of industrial production, for instance, are at the same time harming what we're trying to help. And it's interesting because, you know, when we look at the contemporary extreme adventure, right, on one hand, we have these huge expeditions, or even if they're small, a little bit smaller, or low key, you know, this technology plays a huge role, maybe it's communication technology. So you're, um, you know, you might be on the main, you know, on mainstream media, or even if it's just to your Instagram or uh, other social media accounts, you know, here you are at the, you know, at the summit, uh, or you posted your windsuit flight video so that you know you're promoting right this sort of sense of adventure and activity and technology plays a key role in that and some of the controversy about this too is that as extreme adventure has gotten you know sort of more popular and in some ways more accessible uh in the sense that more people know that uh it's actually become riskier because then now to become more extreme you have to kind of go to this next level. And it's and for some, right, that also entails the abs- a kind of rejection of any sort of technological assistance, like free solo climbing, right, not using ropes or harnesses or other protective equipment or not using supplemental oxygen. And then, uh, but other sports, right, couldn't be extreme. So uh, there's a certain kind of big wave surfing where you have to take a jet ski because to start the wave because it's humanly not possible to ride the wave without, you know, without the jet ski uh, initially sort of getting you started. 
it's interesting the ways in which technology both contributes to the idea of this authentic and sort of quote unquote pure adventure and and how that sort of in some ways in very you know kind of like Thoreau kind of rejecting some of these trappings of society and culture uh, through technology as a way of arguably doing something that's more pure and authentic than other forms. On the same token, there's also, you know, we might call a kind of embrace because of, of the technology, because that's what allows us to do uh, certain kinds of extreme adventures that we never would have been able to do before. We really thank you for joining us for this sharing your expertise as we are thinking about the environment and, of course, our humanity's place within it. Thank you so much for including me in your podcast series. I really appreciate it. So if people want to, I use the hashtag Adrenaline Narrative to tweet about articles and, and things that I see that I think are related. So if folks are interested, they can follow me on Twitter at Dr. KJ at DRKJ. And I always, I'm always interested in suggestions for other adrenaline narratives that, you know, I don't know about or have missed. So I welcome feedback and suggestions. Unraveling the Anthropocene is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. This episode was produced by Hannah Matangos. Be sure to subscribe and follow along wherever you get your podcasts and on social media, including Facebook, where you can search Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State and on Twitter and Instagram at LibArtsCo underscore PSU. That's at L I B A R T S C O underscore PSU. Catch you next time. <laughs>